Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. Well, that's true, but all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, Iris Murdoch. Okay, well, you know, it looks like I'm going solo again today. I guess it's not all bad, though. I mean, it gives me a break from trying to answer some inane question or try to follow and then comment on some weird diatribe. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to jump into the summary then. So, Iris Murdoch, born 1919, was a British philosopher and novelist. She taught philosophy at St. Anne's College, Oxford, until 1963. After that, she spent the rest of her life writing novels and poems and the occasional work in philosophy. Some of her greatest novels include Under the Net and The Bell, and one of her most influential philosophical works is called The Sovereignty of Good. She's considered one of the greatest English writers of the last half of the 20th century. Murdoch died in 1999. Okay, so I guess what I want to try to do first is to say something about um, Murdoch's moral vision or view, because it makes up a large part of her work. Well, where should I begin? Well, you know what? Let's start with Plato, because he was a huge influence on Murdoch. Okay, so Plato famously believed that um, moral goodness existed objectively, that there was a universal and an objective idea of the good which he called um, the form of the good. And so for him, morality wasn't subjective. It wasn't just a matter of our, um, you know, our personal tastes or feelings. Okay, so Iris Murdoch was a a great admirer of Plato. She even called herself a kind of uh, Platonist. And you could say that part of the reason for this was because she liked his metaphysics. In other words, what she liked about Plato was his basic idea that morality or goodness was transcendent. And that's because she too believed that this was the case, that transcendence in some way or another belonged with morality. Now, I say in some way or another because uh, she didn't follow Plato completely in claiming that the form of the good exists in some uh, supernatural way. But again, without being too specific, without giving us the exact nature of the good, she did, like Plato, think that moral goodness held a transcendent position of sorts. Okay, so maybe another way of expressing her view here is that 
we all have this idea of perfection, and that's a curious thing. That's to say, even though, being human, we're not perfect, we still have a sense of better or worse. We're able to make comparisons. And that's because we have a sense, an intuition, of what would be ideal or perfect. In other words, it's only in the light of perfection that we're able to make sense of better alternatives. And this is another way of thinking of the morally good as transcendent. That's to say, perfection's not here. It always lies beyond and transcends all particular moments. But nevertheless, it provides a standard against which we assess a particular situation. So in Murdoch's own words, even though perfection is beyond, it exercises its authority. Actually, you know, in this same vein, Murdoch says something revealing. So, she was an atheist, but she says that even though God does not exist, what led us to conceive of Him does. In other words, it's the idea of perfection that we have that's important. Perfection is real as an idea. Okay, now, like I said, Murdoch didn't agree with everything that Plato said, but at the most fundamental level, I think that what attracted her to Plato's outlook here was the basic idea that there exists a reality beyond our own preferences. She thought this was very, very important. Now, why? Well, it's because such a view, that there's some kind of objectivity that calls out to us, what it does is it pulls us out of ourselves and it forces us to see the world free from our own egos and biases. It reminds us that there's a world beyond ourselves as individuals. Actually, you know, this is why she reacted to some of the existentialists, like Sartre. She thought that this idea that we choose everything, that we, you know, create all value simply by willing and choosing, and that the, the individual is everything, she thought that this was not only very insular, but it just ignored the structure of value out there in the world around us, and just the, the significance of things which are not us. I mean, Murdoch provides several examples, and uh, one in particular comes to my mind. So, she talks about looking out her window, in a self-absorbed, brooding state, completely oblivious to her surroundings. Then, all of a sudden, her trance is broken by the sight of a hawk flying by. Now, the majestic nature of the being alters everything, she says. In one fell swoop, her brooding self is gone, and all that exists is the hawk. Okay, now, why is this important? What's she trying to suggest by this? Well, what she's explaining is the phenomenon that she calls unselfing. And um, what's that? Well, it's when you allow yourself to attend to or to be struck by something. Something that shatters your ego-tainted view of things. It's to open yourself up to some feature of the world and so to momentarily be pulled out of your egoism or lose your sense of self. Now, learning to attend to things in the world, like, uh, say, a hawk, or an artwork even, is actually a prelude to morality, Murdoch thinks. And that's because that is how we should approach other people. This is what it means to be good. 
It means to turn our attention outward, away from ourselves and onto another. To see them as the other that they are, as a being with an independent existence, and not as a being mediated by our own selfish concerns and in the grips of our desires. As Murdoch herself says, Ethics means the annihilation of self before the irreducibility of other people. Or another way of saying all this might be this, that the beginning of morality is the end of egoism. And uh, notice too how objectivity creeps in here. That's to say, when we turn our attention away from ourselves, we are leaving behind that falsifying veil which always conceals the world from us. So, we're seeing things objectively and truly. As Murdoch says, when we unself, we discover reality. I don't know. You know, I wonder what Murdoch would say about our situation today. Are we really seeing anything like reality in our world of social media? sitting around, staring at our pocket mirrors. I wonder if we could use a little more unselfing in our narcissistic world of selfies. And so see what is not us, the world as it really is, out from the cave of images and reflection and into the light of the sun. Okay, well, so what should I talk about next? Well, you know what? Since we talk about a lot of uh, literary works on this podcast, why don't we look at how it is that Murdoch conceives of the difference between literature and philosophy? Because uh, remember, she did both, and so she has some thoughts on this. Okay, so Murdoch thinks that philosophy, especially uh, modern philosophy, beginning with thinkers like uh, Hume and Kant, just can't explain the human soul very adequately. So one major reason for this is that modern philosophy is, she says, materialistic, and it's overly rational. And so its language speaks in an ossified and reductive way. And so because of this, it just can't get at the opacity of persons. I mean, as Murdoch herself once said, she said, the novelist's advantage is the blessed freedom from rationalism. Okay, and another reason that explains the inadequacy of philosophy to do literature is that the subject of modern philosophy, Murdoch thinks, is someone who's insular and solitary. Someone, in other words, who's very, very far away from the world. Now, the result in literature of this is the creation of characters that just aren't very real. They don't really touch the ground, so to speak. And so they're empty or just uh, purely symbolic. You know, um, Merceau in Camus' The Stranger is maybe a good example here. Anyway, it seems to be that ultimately, for Murdoch, philosophy and literature are two very different activities. Now, the goal of philosophy is to clarify and to explain. And philosophy has its place, for sure. However, the problem is that philosophy isn't that great when it comes to ambiguity. But that just is our home, isn't it? We're ambiguous, messy creatures ruled by darker, unconscious forces closely enmeshed in a dirty world. 
And it's literature, not philosophy, that gives us the right sort of vocabulary for this, she thinks. In other words, literature's lack of formal restrictions and its descriptions can get at the the density and the openness of human life in a way that philosophical terminology can't. Which is ultimately to say that literature, not philosophy, is best when trying to say something about the whole of our humanity. Actually, you know, Murdoch aside here, this emphasis on the importance of literature in dealing with the, the darker, more ambiguous or mysterious aspects of human life reminds me of what um, Socrates decides to do at the hour of his death. That's to say, nearly on his deathbed, Socrates does something which seems to suggest that he thinks that there's something missing in his um, characteristic philosophical activity. You know, what he's been doing basically all his life. So what he does is he listens to his, um, his dreams, which tell him to play music and to compose poetry, which he does. Now, Nietzsche's take on this was really interesting. It was that in these last moments, Socrates finally realized or recognized that there's a realm of wisdom aside from the purely rational or logical. Or, to put it somewhat differently, Socrates realized that poetry and art need to be supplemented with philosophy if we ever hope at getting at the whole truth about the human condition. So, maybe in some larger sense, philosophy and literature, though different from one another in their expression or execution, are not ultimately different in their aims. Or maybe another way of putting this is that if philosophy wants to fully realize its goal of truth, it needs art or literature to complement it. So, Maybe then the famous disjunction that Plato makes in the Republic between philosophy and poetry just isn't quite right. And maybe he was too hasty in sending the poets packing from his ideal city. Maybe poetry wasn't the thorn in philosophy's side that he thought it was. Actually, you know, Plato is a very strange case when you think about it. I mean, despite what he says in his dialogues, In the history of philosophy, who represents the fusion between philosophy and poetry better than him? It's the artist and the poet in him that has convinced so many of us of his philosophical insights. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode, Victor Frankel.